We are continuing our study through the book of Acts, and Acts is a historical text that documents the birth and early days of the church. Now really, up through what we've seen so far is the spread of the message of Jesus in and around Jerusalem. And that's mainly really where, it, where it's been happening. But after the death of Stephen, we've seen a rapid expansion of the message moving outside of Jerusalem, mainly because the church has been fleeing. The church fled Jerusalem because of the persecution that was starting to happen. Now, as I was preparing this morning, I just felt the, the Holy Spirit say this to me, to take a moment and say this, that what I'm about to say may be for somebody in this room, it may be for somebody watching online, but this might be your main point. That this isn't going to be the main point that I, that I share here in just a minute, but this may be your main point, that you're going through something and, and you need to hear this this morning. That God can and will use tragedy to move the mission forward. He can and will use tragedy to move the mission forward. Stephen's martyrdom exploded and expanded the church's reach outside of Jerusalem. What really, what really began to happen, what we're starting to see is the fulfillment of the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. And it was brought on, the mission continued to move forward because of Stephen's death. So out of tragedy, God can and will use it to continue to move the mission forward. And this is what's for you. You might be going through tragedy right now or, or facing tragedy in your life. And I don't by any means want to downplay any of that because it is real what you're going through. But I want to tell you this, because of Jesus and with Jesus, there is purpose in your pain. You see, without Jesus, there's just pain. But with Jesus, there's purpose in our pain, and God will use that to move the mission forward. So the last time we wrapped up talking about Acts, we see the apostles in their group, they're starting to head back. Acts tells us they're starting to head back towards Jerusalem. And one of the, the people that are with this group is Philip. But God has a divine appointment for Philip. And it's a critical, it is a critical appointment that begins to lay the foundation for moving forward as to who the message of Jesus is for. Now we have to, we, we have to remember here. We have to remember that it's, it's God with us. It's God with us. It's not God do this for us. But it's, it's God with us. And so God did his part. He gave us Jesus, and now it's up to us. Our job is to take that message of Jesus and begin to share that message throughout the world. It's partnership with God. And that partnership is not in partnership to fulfill our will, but it's partnership to fulfill God's will. It's obedience, it's trust to do what God has called us to do. And so today we're talking about be ready. Do me a favor, bow your heads, close your eyes, repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, speak to my heart.
Change my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I, when I first started college, I was under the expectation. I went straight from high school to college. So I graduated in June, and I started the end of August. I was under the expectations that college was going to be just like high school as far as the work that was going to be done. So I signed up for one class. It was called Western Civilization. And I am a history buff. I love history. So I'm thinking, hey, this is going to be a great class. I'm going to learn more about history. I'm just going to eat it all up. And the professor that was teaching that class was new at the college that I was attending. And he had come from the University of Washington. That should have been my first red flag to being in that class. Because he was from a pretty prestigious university coming and teaching. I'm thinking, I might be in a little bit of trouble here. Just being at this, this college. Now this college is university status. So I always say I graduated from a university. But at the time it was still just a college. It was uh, called Northwest College. But the, the first day of class, we sit down. Now, I'm expecting, because again, this is what I was used to in high school, that the, the teacher would sit down. They would pull out their overhead projector. Some of us remember what those were. You know, the transparencies, all the kids are like, what are you talking about? I don't know what that is. They'd pull out a transparency and they'd begin to lecture, but as they lectured, they'd write down the notes. And as they wrote down the notes, you knew those were the things I was supposed to write down and remember. Well, he put a transparency on that overhead projector that was filled with typed words, and it had nothing to do with what he was talking about. Well, so I thought, at least. So I had no idea what I was supposed to write down as my notes. So I just sat there and I listened to him talk day after day after day. And each day, the, the paper he'd put up was different, but I never knew what I was supposed to write down. Then the, day, the time came when we had our first test. Again, I'm thinking, hey, no problem. I've done, I've done fine before on tests. I get into the, t uh, into the room, sit down. He hands out the test. The test is only five questions, but they're questions that require at least half a page to a page of response. There was no multiple choice. There was no fill in the blank. All that I was used to and expected. I had no idea what these questions were asking me. And so I didn't know how to fill them out. And at that point, I knew I was doomed. I knew that if I didn't do something drastic, I was going to fail this class. So I had a plan. I waited. I waited at my desk, acting like I was writing stuff down. I wasn't. And waited for the first person to get up, walk to the front of the room, and turn in their test. As they did that, that was my distraction. I got up, walked right out the back door, walked right down to the registrar's office, and dropped the class. Some may call me brilliant. <laughs> now, how many of you have ever been late to a memorial service before? I really want to see a show of hands. Have you ever been late to a memorial service? Want, thank you for being honest. And Okay, a few hands. All right, I was hoping lots more were going to say yes, and it doesn't make me feel so bad. But, okay, how about this? Have you ever been late to a memorial service that you were supposed to officiate? I have. It was the first memorial service I was ever to do. I was young, 
And I didn't know the person. Somebody had come to the church and said, can somebody do this? And my boss was like, Enos, you're going to do it. I was like, okay, yay, you know. And so I procrastinated, waited till the day of to actually finish everything that I was going to be writing out and talking about. Um, that morning and time was going, and then what I failed to do was, well, one, I failed to prepare and have it done beforehand, but I failed to make sure that the outfit that I was going to wear still fit me. And so I was trying to get my tie on, but I could not, for the life of me, button the top button. I'm not kidding you, I probably spent 45 minutes struggling to get this stupid little button in this little slit in the top of my shirt. I finally got it. At that point, I knew I was going to be late. I walked, I literally walked right in and right up to the pulpit and started. I don't recommend doing that. One, one last thing, one last thing, and it's all going to tie together, I promise. I was, uh, one of my, my mentors had told me that they were looking for, they needed to hire a new children's pastor. I, at the time, was a youth pastor, but I really, really wanted to go and work at this church, be a part of what they were doing, and I told him, I go, I will be your kid's pastor. I will, what do I need to do to go? He got all excited, and he goes, hey, let's, let's meet this day so-and-so. I'm literally thinking this, this is done. It's a done deal. I'm just going and meeting with him. We're going to talk details, stuff like that. So I show up, and I go in, his, in this conference room, and it's him and a few other people. Now, I know these people. I'm a little surprised that they're there, but I'm, again, I'm just thinking, hey, he's going to formally introduce me to everybody. And I'm sitting there, and then I realize with the first question that they ask that I'm sitting in a job interview. I had no idea. I was not prepared. The first question, come on, I mean, this is, it totally took me back. I was so shocked, I literally was stumbling over my words. I could not get a sentence out. That has never happened to me before or since. That's how shocked I was. The question was this, tell me what your typical day looks like. I was like, um, well, I show up. And um, email. I go through my email, and I'm doing this for like a minute, and it is excruciating. And they finally look at me and they go, "Hey, let's start with a different question." Okay, all of these, all of these moments, in my life—they were painful, and I failed miserably at them. These moments in my life that I failed because I wasn't ready, I wasn't prepared. And now, even though these moments, they, they, they didn't have a huge effect on my life, they could have been worse than they were. Like if I didn't change my habits and figure out that college was different than high school, I could have failed college. I, I could have completely missed the memorial service. That would have been awkward. And I will tell you this, I did not get the job, Okay. But what about you? Can any of you possibly relate to, to any, any of those things? I mean, there's, there's something that you missed, that something that you weren't prepared for, or maybe you just 
weren't even paying attention to notice what was happening around you, like that you're in the middle of a job interview. Okay, but bottom line is you weren't ready. The moment came, you, you didn't act, or you just missed it completely. Whatever the scenario, whatever it is, and you actually may not like what I'm going to say here next, but it was your fault. <laughs> it's all on you. It's just, it's just the honest truth there. But, it, you know, thinking about, maybe as I was talking about some of those, maybe you guys are, are even right now thinking of some of those moments in your life. They're not fun moments to think about. In fact, maybe some of them you're even thinking and going over, it's, you're like, yeah, I think about that a lot. I repeatedly go over and over at different times, and I'm just like, why? Why did I, why did I do that? But what about those times when the, those things that are re- related to being ready for what God has for you in your life. Those moments when you hear the Holy Spirit whisper to you, go and talk to that person. Pick up the phone, start the conversation. I want you to to give and support that over there. I want you to go here, I want you to go there. Those moments that are important, those moments that really matter, Those are the ones that we really want to be prepared for. We want to be ready. We don't want to mess those up. The truth is, we've all at different times in our life have messed up those times when the Spirit has told us to move, to act, to do, and we haven't. Hopefully that's not a reoccurring theme in our life. But that's why we need to be ready. We need to be ready. But why exactly? Why exactly do we need to be ready? We need to be ready because eternity is on the line. Hell is real and people are going there. And I don't say that in the sense of the fear. The fear that there is a hell and that people are going there. To scare people into going, I need to change my life. Or I need to act because I'm afraid somebody is going to go to hell. Our motivation should not be fear. Our motivation should be love. The love should motivate us to tell people about Jesus. The love should motivate us to say, hey, if you don't know the truth, you run the risk of living eternity without God. Because that's what it's all about, and that leads us to our main point. That if you remember anything that I say, remember this, because it really is. It's such an important truth. It's a powerful truth encapsulated in just a few short words. But it's this big ideal that carries so much weight that if we fail to grasp it, we could miss what God has for each and every one of us to do in our lives. And even more so, we miss the opportunity to be a part of somebody's story of coming to know Jesus. And that is this. Jesus isn't just for a few. Jesus is for everyone. He's not just for a few, he's for everyone. Now, if any of you know the story of Philip, I already told you we're going to be talking about Philip, then you kind of have an idea how this is all tying in and how this is going to go. If you don't know the story of Philip, that's okay. We're going to go over it here in just a moment. But this is the important thing when I told you at the beginning that it's the critical foundation that is starting to be laid, that moving forward, who the message of Jesus is going to be for, it will be for everyone. It is for everyone. 
Is anybody else excited this morning? I'm excited. I'm ready to go. Okay, so we're going to jump into Acts chapter 8. But before we do that, I want to, I got to give you just a little bit of history to set up what we're going to be talking about. So we're going to be going over the last few verses of chapter 8 to close out chapter 8. But chapter 8 starts the first of three highly, catch that, highly important conversions. Now when I say conversion, I'm talking about people that turn their lives towards Jesus, that say yes to Jesus and begin to serve and follow after him. Now, now Luke, the writer of Acts, is stressing the importance of these three conversions and this kind of divine appointment with this, with this divine interaction, this divine intervention, uh, intervention, really to put it all together. So today we're going to talk about, in, in Acts, Acts chapter 8, the first of the three, we're going to talk about the Ethiopian's conversion. Okay, in chapter 9, we talk about and we learn about Paul's conversion. And then in chapter 10, we learn about the conversion of a man named Cornelius. Okay, and they are all tied together by this supernatural intervention, this supernatural involvement. And what Luke is showing us is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to bring humanity back to him. It's by no mistake that these three men are talked about. Now, some of you might be asking the question, what do you, what do you mean by God bringing humanity back to him? Because there are people that have never said yes to Jesus. There are people that don't know Jesus. And this is, I am so excited about this because I get to share with you um, this, really, some of you don't know the, the coolness of God's word in the Bible. Like the Bible is a complete story. It is made up of the Old Testament and the New Testament. From Genesis to Revelation, it's one continuous story about the love of a father for his creation and humanity to bring them back to relationship with him. And it's through his son Jesus everywhere in Scripture Everywhere in scripture it points to Jesus and Jesus is the plan to bring them back. So what do you mean bring them back? So starting in Genesis, okay, starting in Genesis we have Adam and Eve. God creates humanity through Adam and Eve to have relationship with him. Like there was no sin around. That was his design. That was his plan that we would be in relationship with him. That when it talks about that God came to walk amongst us, that we would be walking with God. But then sin came into the picture, introduced by Adam and Eve by disobeying God. Sin separates us from God. God and sin cannot be in the same place. So this separation came in. And from that moment, God began the plan to bring us back to him through Jesus. So Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They go on their way. They begin uh, multiplying the earth but they're still living in sin and humanity continues to grow and multiply more and more sin to the point where God himself says, I regret making creation. I regret making humanity. And so he decides I'm gonna wipe it out, but he found a righteous man in Noah. And he said, Noah, through you, I will, I will bring back humanity 
Humanity will be reborn through Noah and his family. So he tells Noah and his sons and his family, he says, hey, build an ark, put the, uh, put the animals in two by two uh, or, uh, or pairs of two to put them on. He's going to flood the earth. He does all of that. And then when the water recedes and they come out of the ark, God tells them, go now into the world, spread out and multiply. And Noah has three sons and their job is to spread out and multiply. Once again, sin creeps in. They, they multiply, but they don't spread out. They stay in one place. They, they disobey what God tells them to do and to spread out. So now we come to Genesis chapter 11. Some of you may have heard before the story, the Tower of Babel. Some of you might be like, how is he going to tie all this together? Just wait, it's coming. So we've got the Tower of Babel here. So, so mankind, humanity, multiplies. But they're all in one centralized location with one common language. There's a lot of unity happening here. There's a lot getting done. But the problem is it's being done out of pride and sinfulness. That they begin thinking of themselves higher than God, that they don't need God. They say, hey, let's build this tower that reaches to the heavens so everyone will see our greatness. And so God says, okay, because you refuse to do willingly what I told you to do, I'm now going to make you do it. And he brought about confusion on them by changing their language. He struck them with this confusion and it brought division into humanity. And so no longer could they communicate because they weren't speaking the same language. They couldn't get along. And so what did they do? They began to find those that spoke the same language of them, and then they began to spread out and multiply. We call this the curse of Babel. Because of humanity's sin, this curse came in that brought division. Now, Let's fast forward. We're talking about these three highly important conversions that Luke talks about in the next three chapters, highlighting the divine nature of them all. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. The Ethiopian was a descendant of the people from, uh, from Ham. Paul was a descendant of, of Shem, and that was, that was the Jewish people, and Cornelius was a descendant of Japheth. So now, watch what's out this division that has been um, spread out throughout humanity. Descendants of all three of those sons that started out and began the rebirth of humanity through God's plan through Noah, find conversion. Jesus makes a way. He makes a way. The curse of Babel is reversed through the church. 
And the church is all because of Jesus. Because Jesus makes a way for people to come back. The thing that separated this family, descendants of this family, are now brought together in the next three conversions, divinely appointed by God into one family. And God uses the church to do it. I don't know if you guys all see the excitement from that. Like, that's so cool. Because Jesus is for everybody. It's not just for one person or one people group. It is Jesus is for everybody and because of Jesus. And so Luke connects all these dots. He's connecting the dots because moving forward, this is a big deal. Why? Because Jesus said, to the ends of the earth. And why am I so excited? Because we see it right here in Acts, the beginning of them spreading the message of hope and Jesus to the ends of the earth, bringing back together what sin has destroyed and taken apart. And it's only through Jesus. So that's the backdrop. That's the setup to all this. You ready to get in the text? Let's do it. All right, so jumping right into Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, first off, angel of the Lord. Luke does this a lot. Luke talks about a lot of miraculous events, talks about angels of the Lord. Again, stressing this divine appointment, this idea. This is what I think is really interesting and is something we need to catch on to. Okay, an angel of the Lord shows up. And he says to Philip, hey, go here. Notice what it doesn't say. An angel of the Lord showed up and startled Philip. Because he had never had an angel speak to him before. If an angel of the Lord showed up and started to speak to me, I'd be like, whoa. How many times are we surprised when the miraculous happens? How many, we, how many times are we surprised when God speaks to us? We're like, wow, hey, God spoke to me. Philip was expecting it because Philip was ready. He was ready. He was prepared. He fully expected God to move in the miraculous. I would dare say that if we are surprised when a healing happens, if we are surprised when God speaks to us or tells us to do something and God moves in a supernatural way, that if we are surprised with that, it means that we need to get closer to Jesus because we never expect it to happen. The closer we are, the least, the, the more expectant we are that he is going to move. Think about when, I'm totally getting off on a trail here, but I think it's good. When Peter and John went to the temple in the beginning of Acts, and there's a beggar there, and he's like, hey, give me something. And Peter says, silver and gold I don't, do not have, but what I do have, I give to you. What was he doing? What, if somebody did that to you, would you be like, hey, I don't have anything, see you later? No, they were fully expecting that God was going to move in a miraculous way and heal that man. And I would just ask the question, are we? And I'm not, I'm not just talking to all of you. I'm talking to myself. Because this is a conviction for myself. How many times have I been surprised? And there have been many 
because I don't live all the time expecting God to continue to use me in miraculous ways each and every day. But the apostle, you think about the boldness that they had, the, the expectancy that they had. It's because every single day they were in communion and communication with God and the Holy Spirit. And they knew when the Holy Spirit said to go, they would go and that God would show up because they were close to him. We need to be close to Jesus. Sorry, that's all free. Okay. Again, this desert place in Gaza, this again is just stressing uh, this, divine, this divine appointment because uh, one, Gaza was where the Philistines were from, great enemies. Uh, this is talking about the old city. More, they believe it's really talking about the old city of Gaza that was destroyed and in ruins. The newer city of Gaza was built up, but it was in a different location. So they're talking about this desert place. So who would be there? Why would a Jew go into the Philistines territory anyways. So again, stressing this divine appointment that God was sending him. But again, the angel of the Lord told him to go. And what does Philip do? He rose up and went. He was ready. He was prepared. He was ready to go. And it says, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Now, this is really interesting because Luke could have just said, hey, he met an Ethiopian along, along the way. But he gave several different things uh, to describe this Ethiopian. So first off, he met this Ethiopian. So he's, he's, he, he'll be a, a black man uh, with darker skin than some of the Jewish people. And he's in the Africa area. They consider it modern day Sudan to this day. So he meets this man. So somebody different than who he is than who Philip is. And then he goes on and he says, a eunuch. Now, there's some discussion as to what did they mean, what did Luke mean by eunuch here? Because there's two ways to look at it. A true eunuch, which means he was castrated and then put into, um, uh, put into like royal court or officials working in service for a kingdom. Or they also describe eunuchs as like military or government officials. But they really believe that that uh, it was probably a true eunuch, meaning he was castrated, because they gave all this other description. He not just said, hey, he's a eunuch, but he's also a court. So it would be redundant to say that twice, if that's what he meant. But also, hold on to that, because when we get into the part where he talks about, where he's reading from Isaiah, there's something cool that you can put together, which again, really probably goes to the fact and this idea that he was a true eunuch. Um, and it says, but he was a court official of Candace. So Candace is just a title. It's like Caesar. Okay, but the queen would take care of the day-to-day -day operations because they believed that the king was more divine. And so he wouldn't come down and, and uh, meddle in everyday uh, operations. But it also says that he was in charge of all of her treasure. So this was a person of influence of wealth, um, he was well off and, and, and known. It says he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now remember, he's an Ethiopian. He's not a Jew. Why would he be going to Jerusalem to worship? So the idea, the thought is that he had probably converted to Judaism. So he considers himself a Jew, but he's again, not a true Jew. But he went to Jerusalem to worship. So think about this for a minute. 
He goes to the city of Jerusalem to worship, the place where God's temple is, the place where God's presence is supposed to reside, and he gets there. And I can only imagine that what he was faced with was of uh, disappointment. Because again, there were so many restrictions and so many roadblocks because he wasn't a true Jew. They had these different courts in the temple. They had one court that was called the court, court of the Gentiles. So basically, if you weren't a Jew but you were a Gentile, you could only get so close. But you could look in to kind of see, but you couldn't be a part of it. And they had these, out, these other courts, the outer courts, the inner courts, the holy of holies, all of this stuff. So he is, it's literally being thrown in his face every time going, I'm different. I'm not the same and I don't get every benefit that you get. There's got to be distance from me and, and God. But he goes there anyway to worship. But I can't imagine that it was, it was this dream that he was thinking of having. Because there was division there. There was separation. It says, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So when it, when it says chariot, again, so guy of influence with money. When it says chariot, it's not like if you've ever seen the movie Ben-Hur. I just lost all everybody from like 40 years un, under. But anyways, think of this chariot. <laughs> Come on. Uh, it was more of like a carriage, okay? And he probably had an entourage with him, two to three different people uh, that you know, took care of his stuff, drove the, the carriage, things like that. I always thought of this chariot, he's like riding in this chariot, I'm like, Anyways, uh, so, and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. Now, c- catch this. Again, this goes to um, his, his being well, well off, having, having money, a man of influence, because that means that he had a scroll. Okay, they didn't have Bibles back then. You couldn't just go and pick it. In fact, the New Testament wasn't even written or put together at that time. I mean, some of it was because there were writings that were going on. But the Bible was not put together. So at that time, the Bible was the Old Testament. But it wasn't put together. It was all in these individual scrolls. And for him to get his hands on a scroll, it must have been expensive. But he, again, was curious. He had this desire to know God that he would spend so much money to to get this scroll. Verse 29, the spirit said to Philip, again, divine appointment. (laughs) Again, spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So what does Philip do? He's not like, yeah, but God, the the chariot's right. I'm on foot here. The guy looks different than me. I, I don't even know if we speak the same language. Like, no. It says he ran because he was prepared. He was ready that when the Holy Spirit said go, he's like, I'm going, just tell me when to stop. And so Philip runs to him, and he heard the reading of Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And we, we all know that we can read things and not understand things. There's a, a difference of, of comprehending it. And this is why it's so important It is so important to have good learners and teachers of God's word. And I'm not just talking about profession. I'm talking about all of us. We all need to be lifelong learners of God's word. It's not what Enos told me that the Bible says. 
It's what you discover, what you've read, what you've researched, what you've looked up. Study to show yourselves approved. But we need people that know the word of God, that understand the word of God, that can explain. And I love what the Ethiopian says. He says, who can guide? People that can guide. We see, we could tell people all day what we think and what something says. But it always works better when we can guide them through it. Take them along on the journey. Help to pull out of them what God has already put in them. What they already know, but they, they just haven't been able to connect the dots and put it all together. But so, the, so the Ethiopian says, he goes, how can I unless someone guides me? And so he invites Philip up into the chariot with him. And this is so important. So important to see. I love what Romans 10 says. It says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Jesus isn't just for a few. He's for everyone. It says, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed in? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is not saying that Philip had beautiful feet. Okay? What this is saying is that we need men and women that are in love with God's word, that read it, that study it, that digest it, that make it a part of them. Because remember, we are the plan for people to know about Jesus. And when it says how beautiful are the feet, because it's such a beautiful thing what Philip did, that he went and he was able to share Jesus. And we can all hold this same title that how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news or teach the good news or share the good news. We all need to know the word of God so that we can share it. We all need to understand it so that we can share it and help lead and guide others. Going on, verse 32, now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. What he's, talking, what he's talking about here is that Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, Isaiah, that he went like a sheep to be slaughtered. He could have, as he was before Herod and the court and, and Pilate, he could have opened his mouth. He could, have, he could have ran circles around all of us. He could have opened his mouth and called down legions of angels to come and rescue him. But instead, he stayed silent. It goes on, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. The humiliation of the crown of thorns, the beating, the trial, uh, hanging on the cross naked, all of that humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation or his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And it goes on, and, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? 
about himself or about someone else. Has anybody ever played baseball or softball? Somebody's like, hey, I'm just going to lob it up to you for you to hit it. Okay? Oh, I loved those ones. Standing up there. Tongue hanging out of my mouth. Chomping at the bit. Ball comes in. Boom! That ball's out. I can only imagine this is what Philip was like. He's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Whom was he? He just opened the door for me to share about Jesus. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth. He opened his, he was ready. He was prepared. He was ready to go. And he, beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Why is it important that we know the word of God? Because the word of God is how Jesus, how God speaks to us the most here on this earth. It's through his word. If there's something we don't know or we need help with, what should we do? We should go to his word to find the answers. And scripture always points to Jesus. And I love what Philip does. He starts with scripture because he was prepared. He was ready. And then he told him the good news about Jesus. Now let's let's not get confused either. We can learn a lot about Scripture and never apply it. And that is not good. I just learned that the word listen is derived from the Greek word obey. So what that means is when you listen, you are to do what it says. And if you don't, guess what? That's disobedience. And disobedience is sin. If you only know the Word of God and never apply it to your life, you are sinning. He was ready. He was prepared. He did what needed to be done. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says this, the preacher's responsibility, and I want you to, listen, this is, it doesn't matter if it's the preacher, the teacher, the seasoned saint, it doesn't matter, anybody. It is your responsibility, no matter what text of scripture is in view, is to read the text, then make a beeline for the cross. Let them know about Jesus. Let them know about Jesus. All right, verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So something in Philip's description or in his presentation, he talked about baptism, water baptism. And so they come along, and they see this. he sees this water, and he's like, hey, what should prevent me from being baptized? Like he was, he, he, he was, he felt that urgency to go, I want, I've made this, I want this. Now, in your Bibles, you may have a verse 37, depending upon which translation you use, or there may not be a verse 37. Yeah, you're like, wait, how does that happen? <laughs> it's because some of the earliest manuscripts omit verse 37 because they don't show up until later in some of the later writings. But verse 37 literally just says, because uh, he asks the question, wait, what do I have to do to be water baptized? Uh, Philip says, hey, uh, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, basically. So some translations put it in, others leave it out because in the earliest of texts, they omit it from it's that verse 37 is omitted. So, but it's still, by putting it in, it doesn't take away from, uh, from what the story is, what the theme, what the main idea is. So that's why some put it in. So he says, what prevents me? 
And here it is. Okay, in verse 38. This is the climax of the entire story. And he commanded the chariot to stop. So this Ethiopian eunuch, he goes, stop. Stop the chariot. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. An outsider gives their life to Jesus and is baptized. Baptism is the next immediate step after you give your life to Jesus. You know, I don't understand. Why do I, why do I have to be baptized? Last week we saw many people celebrate. We celebrated with many. Baptism is simply the outward sign of an inward change. It represents what Jesus did on the cross, that we die to our old self. With Jesus we rise up and are a new creation. Anybody ever seen the elf? He goes out on a date. He comes in and he goes, I'm in love and I don't care who knows it. That's baptism. I'm in love with Jesus and I don't care who knows it. We stand up and we profess our faith. Jesus said, if you acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. Ouch. Hey, I didn't write it. Okay. Just telling you what the Bible says. But get the picture. An outsider, a non-Jew, someone with barrier after barrier that would keep him out of the full presence of God because of Jesus gets to experience the full presence of God. That is a miracle. Because Jesus isn't just for the few. Jesus is for everyone. There's other stuff I'll go on. Later on, the verses and chapters down from what he was reading in that scroll, you can look it up and read over it. This is the other thing. Just a few chapters down, it talks about eunuchs inheriting and having a relationship with Jesus, being, being able to come in to the presence of God. So that's the other reason why I really believe that he was a true eunuch, that, that as he's reading through this, he, the spirits lean him along. He says, hey, I believe in Jesus, but, 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 but. And Isaiah says, hey, even the eunuchs, even the eunuchs that were specifically written about in Deuteronomy in the law that no, you cannot come in to the presence of God is restored. The curse of division amongst humanity is broken because of Jesus through the church. Come on, somebody. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Some believe the word carried away just meant that he left really quickly. Others say that it means that, no, the, the Spirit came and swept him, and he supernaturally disappeared. It's probably that because, again, 
Luke puts in and he stresses divine uh, intervention, divine appointment, all of, all of these things. And this isn't the first time we see this in Scripture. Enoch was taken away, never died. Uh, the Lord took him up and even Elijah ascended into heaven. So the Spirit can move during this. Uh, so they have that in there. I don't even think that's a, a big point. Again, I think it just stresses, again, divine intervention. But it says the, the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. What that means, because here's the other thing. It doesn't say, and the eunuch looked up, and he's like, where did he go? You know, surprise. No, he just made a decision. Jesus just came into his life. He was rejoicing. And that word rejoicing also means that he was committed to his decision. So why would he not be surprised? Because God brought Philip there out of the blue. Why wouldn't he take him away out of the blue? But he went away rejoicing. There is, again, there's some people that believe that this Ethiopian eunuch was the first missionary into uh, Africa and spread the word of God into Africa. But there's no real proof that that happened. But you may have heard that. And so I just wanted to, to mention that if you're like, yeah, that was the one. I, well, they, they actually don't have actual proof that he did that, just hearsay from different stories and things like that. But they don't know if it's firsthand knowledge or not. But anyways, so verse 40, but Philip found himself at uh, Asitus and he, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is what I want to highlight. Wherever he went, he was ready. He was ready and he told and shared the message of Jesus wherever he went. He was prepared and we need to be prepared. And why? Because Jesus isn't for just a few. Jesus is for everyone. So what do we do with this? How do we, how do we take this away? If Jesus truly is for everyone, then we need to get serious and we need to get busy. There, the population of this planet is about 8 billion people. Out of that 8 billion, about 34% profess to be Christians. That is less than 3 billion people. Less than 3 billion people out of 8 billion profess to be Christians. We, us, the church is God's only plan for sharing and spreading the message and hope of Jesus. We are God's only plan. And there are people that do not know Jesus. Our mission our lives, every facet, from what we say, what we do, how we live, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we prioritize things, our lives scream what we are about. My question is, what is your life screaming that you are about? What is number one in your life? What is your mission? Tell people that you're about. Philip was ready. He was ready. We as the church, as individuals, we need to be ready. 
And that's why we have church, to come, to learn, to equip, to train. Our mission is to lead people into a relationship with Jesus. We do that by helping people to know God, giving them an opportunity to to, to receive Jesus by sharing the good news of Jesus. We help people to find freedom, to let go of their past after they've said yes to Jesus. Life change happens in the context of relationship, and we do that through small groups. We just started small groups last week. If you have not joined a small group, you need to because you're not supposed to do life alone, and you need people around you to encourage you, to challenge you, to keep you accountable, that when you are not doing what God has called you to do, the relationships formed helps them to encourage you and helps you to stay on the path that God has for you. That's how we find our freedom through smaller groups. Join a small group. We help people to discover their purpose. We need to know the plan and the purpose that God has for our life, how he has uniquely designed us and gifted us so that we could use those gifts and talents. What, for ourselves? No, so that we can make a difference for eternity. That happens because of church, but it can't just happen in one day. And a lot of responsibility lies on us. We have to be responsible for our own growth. Yes, we have things in place to help us. But at the end of the day, when you stand before Jesus, and again, don't look at it, don't look at it as this this bad thing, Uh uh-oh, that we have to stand and give an account of our lives and how we lived it. He's not going to say, what didn't the church teach you? He's gonna say, what did you do with the life my son gave you to make him famous? That's all on us. It's not on anybody else. Jesus isn't just for a few. Jesus is for everyone. This is how I want you to respond this morning. How do you take away? What do you do with this? Simply this. If you don't know Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to receive him this morning. And just like I said, hey, I'm in love with Jesus and I don't care who knows. You're around safe people here. We're going to cheer you on. You may be afraid, fearful, but I'm just going to ask you, if you have never said yes to Jesus before in your life and you want to say yes to him now, would you just stand up? Wherever you are in this room, just stand up. So we're going to cheer for you. The Bible says that all of heaven rejoices over one sinner, or one person that says yes to Jesus. We want to celebrate for that. Maybe, maybe all of you, maybe nobody's here make that decision, but you've made that decision before and you said, you know what, I definitely just need a fresh start with Jesus. I've not been living for him. I've been living for myself. I've been doing whatever. And I just need this morning to make that fresh commitment with him to start all over. If that's you, would you stand to your feet? Would you be courageous enough to stand to your feet? And the motion isn't what does it, it's what's in your heart, but we wanna celebrate with you. Here's the other thing, if there's people in here, how to respond, you would say, you know what, I need to be ready. My relationship with, with Jesus is good, but I have a problem saying yes right away. And I need to say yes to God when he calls me to do something. I've countless stories of people just recently telling me, 
man, I, I felt the Holy Spirit saying, do it and do it now. Let's respond immediately. And so if that's you, I just want to invite you up to find a place and just seek after God and make a commitment to Him. Now, I'm going to say yes to you. When you start telling me to do something, I'm going to say yes right away. I'm not going to wait. I'm going to say yes right away. Maybe you need a physical touch in this room. I want you to we have our prayer team. Our prayer team will be up over here on this right side. If you want prayer physically, uh, would you go find one of our prayer team and let them pray over you and for you? If you just, you're going through stuff, maybe you're going through tragedy, uh, you, you need to come up, you got baggage, you just, man, these altars are open for response. We call them an altar because it's a place that represents where God's presence is. God can move in your life, in your seat, uh, but there's something about physically taking a step after you make a commitment to something, and that's what it's all about. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand your feet. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. If you need to go, you are officially dismissed, but uh, this is how I want you to respond. If God is moving on your heart to do that, I want to encourage you to do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are so good. God, we love you. God, would you move in the lives of your people as they respond, as they make that commitment. God, to say yes to you right away, to not be hesitant. Those that that uh, maybe they didn't stand, but they want to give their life to you, it's just as simple as saying, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. Lord, those that, that need physical healing, we pray in Jesus' name, a healing touch over their bodies and their lives. Lord, would you move in only the way that you can move? But it takes us stepping out and responding to what you're calling us to do. And I pray for courage in that, that they would just focus on you right now this morning and let you speak to them, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.